singularity. So thank you for having me here, Nicola. Uh, as you probably know, my name's Trevor Haldenby. I'm a futurist. I'm an entrepreneur. Here and there, I've been an editor and a journalist. And for a few years now, I've been trying really hard to get on Singularity one-on-one. -on -one. Uh. <laughs> and this turned out to be the perfect opportunity to do it. Get a little bit of the turning of the tables going on, put you in the hot seat, see how you do, uh, and talk about the future. As you're a man who's heard a lot of ideas about the future, I think it's, it's high time we started talking about yours. But uh, before we get to the future, I think it's important to dive back to the past, to the, to the origin story of Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Where did you start? How did you get into blogging? How did you get into podcasting? Yeah, it's been almost seven years, so now it's almost like ancient history. But uh, basically, if I'm to say how I started in a word, I would have to say that it started with a failure. Uh -huh. <laughs> the failure to find the job, basically. Um, I graduated uh, with a master's degree from York University around 2008 at the peak of the recession here in Canada. Uh -huh. And I think I stopped counting after sending the 300th resume. Uh, and I sent a, a bunch afterwards too, but I stopped counting. And I had one interview, <laughs> which apparently didn't go very well because they never called me back. And uh, so I was totally uh, aimless, useless, and unemployed, uh, not very happily. Uh, but one of the applications that I sent towards the very end mm -hmm. was for the first Singularity blog at the time, or the first Singularity blog period, which was called Singularity Hub. And uh, the Hub had an open call for staff writers, so I thought, well, you know, I've actually researched this topic for the last couple of years. People say I'm a, I'm a decent writer, so why don't I apply for it? Mm -hmm. And so I did. I sent them a resume, maybe a cover letter, a few other things, maybe a writing sample, I don't remember. But I never heard back from them. And it took probably somewhere between one and two weeks until the thought that probably it's not too insane to presume that I might be able to pull this off on my own actually occurred to me or the beginnings of it kind of started showing up on the horizon of, of my brain somewhere and I actually went for it so it took me forever mm -hmm. um, because uh, my degree is in philosophy political science and economics so I knew nothing about web design nothing about computer science nothing about anything related to having a website so I spent like three or four months studying HTML and I um, in another maybe three months, uh, I had maybe 50 or 60 pages of a domain that was called singularitysymposium.com. Uh, the domain is still live. It's still up there. I haven't touched it in maybe six years, mm -hmm. but it's still there. You can still see where I started. And by the way, that's like the fifth version of it at the time. And it's still absolutely horrible, I think. But the first few versions were just horrid. They were just shockingly bad. The good news, though, was that it got me going slowly, terribly, with many missteps, many failures, many ugly designs and many other problems, but it got me going. And after about six months, I one day discovered WordPress and I thought, wow, how cool is this? If you can actually type in a Word document, you can actually have a website. So that's perfect for ignorantes like me 
who don't know anything about that kind of stuff. So excellent. And then I moved from Singularity Symposium and started Singularity Weblog. Um, and then it took another maybe six months for me to hear about this thing called podcasting. Uh, and again, I had lots of fears, you know, the fear that I don't know anything about audio gear. And by the way, it never even occurred to me that I'll be doing video eventually. Just the thought of doing audio was shockingly scary at that time. Uh, and I knew nothing about microphones, about the equipment, the mixers, nothing. Um, and of course, I also had the fear that, you know, I have a pretty distinct Bulgarian accent. So I thought, well, who is actually going to bother to listen to me speaking if, if they kind of prejudge me and say, look, this guy has even trouble speaking English. Why would we waste our time listening to what he has to say? I think it's a distinctly captivating Bulgarian accent. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, my wife might actually agree with you to a certain degree, <laughs> but that gives us an audience of two. Uh -huh. The question is, would it go any further beyond the people who are my friends and, and who uh, have to have an emotional attachment to me and people who just would want to kind of uh, objectively and dispassionately uh, be really honestly interested in what I have to offer. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, hopefully mostly overcame those fears. They do reemerge every once in a while. But uh, yeah, and so here we are six or seven years later. Uh, Not a bad exponential takeoff. I Yeah, well, it's been a good journey and a good path, I would not qualify it as exponential. I wish it were. I mm -hmm. would call it more as a slow grinding, um, ramping up of, of effort and, and impact. The hopefully. gritty grind. Well, yeah, it's, it's classic storyteller's story. You learn the nuts and bolts of your craft. Your first book that was overlooked by all the presses <laughs> in the top 10 list was 80,000 words of rejection letters. Um, and you started off with a symposium. So you, you started with Plato's kind of format and then you, you moved back in time a little bit. Um, but getting, getting to the present, Singularity 101, what's the point? Give us Singularity 101 101. What's it all about? What's the mission? What's the point of it? What are you trying to accomplish? So if let me break that question into three steps. The thesis, the mission, and sort of the, the tool, if mm -hmm. you will. So if I were to put the thesis in a single sentence, I would say something like, technology is not enough. That's what I would say. Technology is great. It can do miracles, but it's how you use that technology, how you apply it. So technology in its own right is amoral. It's not moral and it's not immoral, but the application thereof can turn it either way, can make it immoral or moral. And that's what ethics is all about. It's about making choices or hopefully teaching us, educating us how to make better choices. And so that's the thesis. The thesis is technology is not enough. Mm -hmm. We need something else. And my answer to that something else is we need ethics, whether we are aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the mission? The mission is basically I'm still right where I was when I was undergrad. Um, and I'm a big fan of the Socratic school. And I believe that 
it's a, a symposium is an excellent setting for learning, but even more so, it's an excellent setting for giving birth to one's own ideas. Mm -hmm. This is what Socrates was all about. He was not a teacher. He was at best a midwife. Mm -hmm. which is why all his students will, went all over the place and founded all kinds of philosophical schools, which were mutually exclusive, by the way, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my mission. My mission is uh, not to teach people anything. It's not to tell them what to think. My mission is at best to ask a few good questions, which would hopefully set the environment, set the setting, hopefully a symposium, where you, anyone, can kind of give birth to their own ideas if I've done my, my job right. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, think, I think this is what it's all about. Symposium 2.0. You must get that a lot when you introduce yourself as Socrates. People think, didn't he die 2,400 years ago? What relevance does a Socratic conversation have in the age of exponential technologies and the singularity? So you think that that's, that idea is as relevant now as it was 2,000 years ago? Well, you're free to disagree with me, but I'm a very firm believer of the Socratic method, the mm -hmm. dialectical method of investigation. I believe that anytime we need to get to knowledge, we must start with ignorance, what the Buddhists call the beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. um, and if we start with our presumptions and assumptions, we are likely going to be derailed by them. Um, and we have to ask the right questions because the kind of questions we ask are going to produce eventually the kind of answers we're going to get. So actually spending a lot more time on the question is crucial to finding the right answers. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the, 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 the ability to to even think for yourself, to ask those questions and to, to, to keep going on that, on, on that journey is mm -hmm. what progress is all about. Because answers are basically waypoints along the journey. It's, it's, if we embrace an answer too tightly, then we'll be stuck there forever. We would never make any progress. All progress is based on the fact that the new generation usually tends to dislike the answers handed down to them mm -hmm. by the older generation and he has the audacity and the courage to ask new questions to reframe the, the old answers and to provide their own and this is how we move forward and this is why i believe that that method of investigation is crucial to progress it's crucial to science actually i believe and hopefully if i do my job right this is the kind of service i'm trying to provide that, that's an interesting answer as we begin to delve into the, the subject matter and the mission and the thesis of Singularity Weblog in one-on-one. -on -one. Is a system that challenges people to reject, or is, is our habit as a species and as a civilization of rejecting the ideas that were handed from our forebears and being forced to come up with our own, whether in a reactionary way or in a creative way, is that something we can depend on in the world anymore, given that so much more change, particularly in the realm of technology, is happening within the scale of a human generation? Uh, do we require new tools to ask ourselves questions, to challenge our own grit and substance? I would say yes and no. So you see, we don't necessarily have to reject everything, mm -hmm. or anything for that matter. 
that's a journey uh, that each of us has to undertake on their own. And, you know, I don't have kids, but to me, um, and you do, but, but to me, the best way of teaching a, a child is not, or anyone, is not handing them the answer and saying, this is it, this mm -hmm. is how it's done. I'd say a better way is to ask them to, or teach them how to ask the right questions, and then they will discover the answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it may be the same answer, quite often, it may be a different answer. In either case, the level of satisfaction, the level of accomplishment, the level of conviction is going to be entirely different than if you just hand them down the answer. And also, the level of adaptation and their ability to move forward in life mm -hmm. in different, harder and bigger situations, and with that kind of tool, approach them and come out on top more often rather than not. I just finished reading this book last week while I was on a, a ship cruise, uh, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. And as a psychologist, she spent a lot of her career looking at the experiences that people have as children and how the reward structures are set up in their household and how uh, what kind of loving encouragement or challenging uh, prompts they receive from their parents and how in a lot of cases, not necessarily with everybody, but with the people who go on to do amazing things, whether it's their parents or their friends or their mentors, somebody early in their life provided them with that kind of guidance or that kind of a learning environment where the emphasis is allowed to be put on failure from time to time and what you can learn from it and how you can develop skills and resilience in yourself to deal with your mistakes and, and move forward. Uh, and of course, there's that old saying that if you if you teach someone to fish, you have a lot better time um, helping them manage their hunger in the longer term than if you just take them down to the market and show them how to buy one. I'm still teaching my son how to fish. At three, it's a little bit complicated. Uh, he hasn't come back with hooks dangling with dinnertime delights or anything yet. But it's the habit, though. It's the habit that it's makes the, habit. the difference. Not necessarily the one or two times he's going to catch the fish. It's the habit of fishing. Mm -hmm. makes the difference right it's the habit of asking questions it's the habit of going to try and discover something anew and the habit of failing because much of the time you know you go fishing you're going to slip you're going to uh, you know strip your knees you're going to fall in the water sometimes you know mm -hmm. you're going to do you're going to get yourself all muddy and messed up there's going to be problems but that's part of the process so it's the habit sometimes the fish are too big Sometimes it's a shark, not a fish. Right, exactly. Sometimes it's the old man in the sea. Yes, there's all those ones. So, those are all each good lessons. Uh-huh. So on the topic of going to fish and coming back with an empty stomach, you've recently become, uh, you've adopted a vegan diet. Ah, uh, yes. How's it going? Yes. How's the fishing? <laughs> <laughs> no fishing on vegan diet unless you count fishing for kale and beans and stuff uh -huh. like that. Uh, to be honest, I am sort of shocked really how easy it was for me mm -hmm. because I'm Bulgarian originally, which means I'm a very heavy cheese eater uh, and also meat, uh, but, but especially cheese. Uh, and I thought this will be near impossible for me to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been four or five months. I haven't had any cravings. Um, it's been amazingly easy for me. The hard part is the social part that's mm -hmm. that's where it's really hard it's it's going out with a bunch of friends and being the only vegan and then 
trying not to impose my lifestyle on others or not to impact them in any way in terms of ruining the mood or, mm -hmm. or being too kind of a high maintenance kind of guy while still standing out for my principles. Now that's that's the tough part that I'm still struggling with and, and learning from. The social problems are complicated. Yeah, it maybe it's just because of your interest in this, in all things singulitarian. Uh, but it seems to me like the endeavor you're taking to to try on this this vegan diet and lifestyle It seems sort of like a training wheels mission for perhaps moving yourself in a transhumanist direction <laughs> It's easy to it's easy to inject uh, The material or the nanobots into your bloodstream or to get the the RFID tattoos embedded under your skin uh, But the tough part is fitting in it's living in a world where the your friends, your family, the people you love, the people you work with every day aren't in the same paradigm as you. And you sort of stick out like a sore thumb or people have to make adjustments to their lifestyle in order to accommodate yours. Um, so are, are you planning to go go whole hog transhumanist anytime soon? Is this is this like a, a prototype training wheels mission? Well, to be honest, uh, I am kind of not very courageous when it comes to transhumanism and getting any kinds of implants. I'm very kind of fearful. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get the, the beta uh, sort of products. I don't <laughs> probably even want to get the 1.0 products. I want to get the 2 and 3.0 products which have sure. been tested and proven to be safe. So when it comes to computers, I'm an early adopter. I buy the latest stuff. I install the latest software. If it crashes, I know I can fix it. But if this thing crashes, I'm screwed. I have nothing left. That's 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 my best asset. So I can't just take a chance on it, uh, of ruining it. Mm -hmm. I mean, without being certain beyond any reasonable doubt that it's not going to mess things up for me. So no, I'm not planning to go transhumanist quite yet. Uh, and plus, I did my uh, veganism for ethical reasons first mm -hmm. and foremost. Uh, there were three reasons. The first one was animal rights and animal suffering and animal abuse. We kill about 65 or 70 billion animals on our planet every year. Um, and so I thought if at least I stop eating animals, that's dozens upon dozens, probably in the course of a year, I don't know, somewhere between maybe 50 and 100 animals, mm -hmm. who knows. Uh, de depending whether you count, count single fishes and, and chickens and stuff like that. So I thought, well, at least I can stop doing that myself. Mm -hmm. uh, the second part was about the planet because, and it's kind of selfish in, in that way, but, uh, you know, as India and China are becoming richer and richer, they're developing taste for red meat. Mm -hmm. And uh, that means we're going to need more and more animals. And we know they are the ones who create, for example, the highest pollution levels, uh, they're the reason why we have to cut rainforest to grow either soy or corn to feed cattle, Sure. Uh, which then that land often turns into desert afterwards. Yeah, and all the fossil fuels used in moving food products Methane around, refrigerating. Methane is a byproduct of yeah. animals, of cattle farming in, in particular. And so to just sustain uh, that kind of thing, if China and India were to uh, eat as much meat as we need, we need something like three to five planets. We don't have three to five planets. We only have one. Mm -hmm. So that was the second reason. And the third reason, which I actually didn't believe in originally, but after observing my own sort of biological changes in the last uh, five months, 
and going at least one, maybe two levels higher on my biking, um, I can say honestly, I believe that for me, this has been the healthy choice. Okay. When I started, I was pretty sure it's not going to be very healthy for me, but I thought, well, I'm going to do it for ethical reasons anyway. Now I'm actually convinced, uh, not only from personal experience and my own personal observations, but also from a lot of research and work that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where my convictions lie, and those were the three main reasons. So what interest or awareness do you have in the realm of laboratory or vat-grown meat? Is this something you see yourself perhaps moving to? It's, a, it's an ethically acceptable substitute for the 70 billion animals a year? Yeah, to be honest, I'm all for it. Uh, in principle, uh, because it's going to alleviate the problems that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, all three of them, hopefully. And personally speaking, though, however, I have lost kind of interest in meat, to be mm-hmm. honest. So for me, if it's available, it will be great. Now I hope everyone switches to it. I'm personally quite quite fine with my grains and, and vegetables and fruits which I've been very kind of accustomed to in the last four or five months. And I don't feel the need of eating any meat anymore, to be honest with you, at least. And I don't know how I'm going to feel in five years, but it's because it's been only five or six months. But mm-hmm. at least today, I don't. Well, and it seems like we've reached uh, something of a tipping point in terms of vegan lifestyles, certainly in a place like Toronto, where we live. It's exploding. It's exploding. There are restaurants opening up all over the place. There are the the subsects of veganism. There's gluten-free veganism and raw gluten-free. All kinds of options. So there's a foundation there for a different kind of social acceptance. And you could say we're probably at veganism 2.0 or 3.0. You've you've missed that harrowing early adopter window that scares so many people off of it. That's the other thing is it used to be really hard. Mm -hmm. Now, especially if you live in a big metropolitan place like Toronto, it's so easy. Like I can walk three minutes from where I live and I can get all kinds of fruits and vegetables from any country, any time, almost any time of the day. Most of the many stores here are 24 hours and eat to my content. And to be honest, when you stop buying the red meats and the expensive cheeses and all those things, mm-hmm. I can now buy the most expensive fruit and I think I'm, I'm still coming up positive even in terms of our family budget too. So we're also saving money, which is nice. I don't think we're saving too much, maybe 10, 15% because we're buying very high quality fruits and vegetables. Sure. But we never hesitate about it because it's so much cheaper than buying steaks or anything with meat really. The amazing things you can do when you live in a North American metropolitan center. Yeah, we're I, like we have a very spoiled and easy life here. Um, so there are many amazing things you can do in a city like this. In many cities, the exploding number of large cities that exist around the world, where new kinds of culture are possible, new uses of technology, new economies of scale. Uh, one thing that has remained very hard for a lot of people to do, regardless of what city of opportunity you live in is to make a full-time career doing the thing that you love. So you found yourself quite a little niche. Uh, I imagine at times it's it's amazing that it's lucrative at all, but you've built a reasonable audience uh, and you've managed to do so without any corporate sponsorship. So how and why has that happened? What's What's the struggle been like as a cultural entrepreneur or as an infopreneur, I think you call yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, let me just say, first of all, I don't have some kind of philosophical or ethical thing against corporate sponsorships. Mm-hmm. 
the thing for me though is that my ethics and or my reputation are my most valuable assets therefore for me to take on such sponsorship and which is the reason why i've turned down several is that i really have to believe in those values uh, i really have to believe that we are on the same page and if they're trying to sell any products or anything like this i really have to be able to stand behind those as either a user or an endorser who is very uh, kind of 100% behind it. Mm -hmm. So if I'm just like 80% behind it, I can't do it. So that's the reason why I haven't done it so far. I'm hope I'm happy to do it if I have the right people and the right company. So far, I haven't been able to 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 find them. I'm sure the Koch brothers are interested. Uh, the singularity well, brought to you by AOL, brought to you by Apple. Right, right. I, it's not my singularity, that's for <laughs> sure. That's for sure, not my singularity. Uh, now, that means also, though, however, there's a price to be paid for that. Integrity mm -hmm. is not a cheap thing. Mm -hmm. It's a very expensive thing, actually. Um, but if you believe in, 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 your, in what you say, and actually that kind of connects to my veganism too, it, it's very important to not only talk the walk, but also to walk the talk. Mm -hmm. You have to live your message. That's crucial for me as a philosopher and someone who cares about ethics. And so uh, that's also another reason why I became vegan. Uh, but going back to your current question, um, it's been tough, you know, it's not been easy. Uh, people often underestimate the resources required to keep this going. Sure. I've produced uh, 200 episodes of them, maybe 40 or 50 have been produced in person mm -hmm. with often two or three uh, cameras at near, near or equal to broadcast quality. And not always just downstairs, I imagine. Yes, uh, often involving traveling across North America. Uh, and that means that those episodes uh, can cost anywhere from, let's say, $1,000. Mm -hmm. So first of all, if I'm shooting at home here in Toronto, it's usually $500 and up. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I have a camera guy who has a family who, you know, I cannot ask people to volunteer for me all the time. Uh, even though I've had people who have helped me, it, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that either, by the way, especially on a long-term basis. So if it's at home, it starts from $500 with the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And then if we travel two, three, four thousand, if we go all the way where somewhere where we have to fly, airplane tickets, car rentals, gear, you know, haulage, you name it, it adds up very quickly. Some of my interviews have costed me around $4,000. Let's do the 205th episode as an interview with Elon Musk on the surface of Mars. That'll be a budget. <laughs> well, I hope I do the 205th episode with Elon Musk uh, in California and then maybe the 1,005th <clears throat> one in, uh, on Mars. Um, yeah, I've been trying to, as you know, I've been trying to get Elon for a while. So far, he's been silent. Mm -hmm. The good news in that is that he hasn't said no. Uh -huh. The bad news is that he also hasn't said yes either. So it is what it is. I will keep trying. As you know, I, I don't give up easily. <laughs> Um, going back uh, further though into the topic, how I've managed to survive so far. Well, I've managed to survive from two things. Most of all, I've managed to survive from the support of my, my audience. 85% um, of my income probably comes from donations. Mm -hmm. As you know, I don't sell anything. I don't have any hard pitches on my show. 
I, sh I have a little soft pitch at the beginning of the show sometimes and sometimes at the end, not always. So I make a pitch here and there. Sometimes I tweet and I say, hey, donate, support the show, something like that. You know, and some people do. A very small fraction of, of my audience uh, takes action, unfortunately, but still it has survived me. Uh, it has allowed me to survive. Mm -hmm. And I also want to shout out a couple of people uh, one person in particularly, uh, his name is Richard Sundval, uh, who uh, lives in Portland and who has been by far the single most generous donor I have ever had in the history of Singularity One-on-One and who for a period of a couple of years paid probably 90%, if not more, of, of all the in-person interviews out of his pocket wow. without any requirements, without any obligations and without any limitations. Basically. He was the most generous person I have ever met in my life. So thanks to people like Richard and anyone else who may have not had the resources that Richard has, but uh, who has sent 10 bucks a month or mm -hmm. five bucks or something like that. This is how I've survived and this is how I've managed to get to 200 episodes. Great. Did Socrates have anyone like that in his life? Yes. Well, Socrates is, uh, by living, uh, Socrates was a stonemason. Uh-huh. So to say that he was making a good living would be a high exaggeration. Um, he is very well known for never asking, uh, first he refused to admit that he had students. So he had what he called followers and or friends. Secondly- On Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the Athenian sort of proto-democracy at the time, it was more in the symposium, on, on the symposium. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is known for never asking people for help financially or setting a price. He's also known for uh, arguing vehemently against the sophists, whom he called prostitutors of wisdom, mm -hmm. uh, because they were uh, selling their services to the highest bidder. And yeah, so in a way, you could say that I'm kind of making my living in the Socratic way from my followers, which is kind of weird to say, but it's the truth. Well, power to you and your integrity. I guess that makes me a sophist, uh, <laughs> selling, selling visions of the future that come to life all around people to, uh, to the highest corporate bidder. Um, but it, I, I, I think there's a few other bad, bad boxes that you have to check in to fall into the sure. sophist because there is no, there's not just two extremes. There is like, variety of options in between and you can be a good philosopher who works for hire without necessarily falling into the sophist category and, mm -hmm. and and some of those ones arguably were people like perhaps let's say Epicurus mm -hmm. or Aristippus perhaps. Uh, Plato and Aristotle were both independently wealthy so they didn't have to work for anyone uh, and as Plato said philosophy is not for the poor or the hungry. Mm -hmm. I think actually he said philosophy is not for the hungry, which he meant the poor, uh, because he was very wealthy from aristocratic background. Uh, so Interesting. yeah, so no judgment, uh, and and from what I know about you and your work, I definitely would not call you a sophist. We tr we try to keep our integrity. Um, we go through a process sometimes when we're evaluating new work, trying to figure out which future scenarios we're most interested ad into ad in adapting into works of theater or transmedia fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we like to think that we interview our clients as much as they are interviewing us, mm -hmm. looking for the right values, looking for the right fit with our process, our creative vision. Mm 
Exactly. Uh, and that's that's a complicated thing. Um, if you could look back at all the episodes, the 200 episodes of Singularity One-on-One, is there one that stands out for you as a favorite of an example where the stars have aligned in the right way, you've had the right number of cups of coffee, not too many, not too few? Yeah. Uh, well, to be honest, to me, that sounds like asking a parent of several kids, which one's your favorite child? Even if they have some kind of a leaning or inclination, chances are they would never say it publicly mm-hmm. uh, because of all kinds of things going wrong afterwards. Even if you only have one, it's sometimes complicated to answer that question. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, I totally cannot answer that question. What I can say, though, is that one thing that I've learned is that different things uh, reverberate or connect better with different people. So mm-hmm. it often happens to me that I would think after an interview, damn it, man, I totally messed that one up. I totally screwed up. I squandered any possibility to come up with something new or to, to bring something new. And then I would have people who would send me emails and who would say, this was the best interview you've ever done. This was my most favoriteest interview you've ever done. A- and vice versa, I'll have interviews that I felt great, and someone would send an email and say, this one really sucked, you, you really were not on your ball, you, you were not on your game, you're just like half asleep or something, right? So what I've learned, in other words, is like I can only do my best, and I would put it out there, and it's kind of my gift to the world. Some people would accept it and appreciate it. Some people would spit on it. Sometimes justifiably so, sometimes not justifiably so. And in the end of the day, who am I even, who am I even to say and to judge when is it justified mm-hmm. to, 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 critis- to spit on my work or not, basically? I don't know. I just do what I do, and then it's up to you to decide what you make of it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about those two kind of categories, or two of the categories that you suggested. An interview that you didn't think went all that well, but you get fan mail. Everybody says, I loved it. That was amazing. You've blown my mind. Yeah. And the alternative, something where you thought you were firing in all cylinders, you asked all the right questions, you yeah. had a great dialogue and rapport, but it didn't really resonate with people. What do those two, what do the podcast episodes that fall into those two categories tend to have in common? What really resonates with your audience? We'll start on that extreme. Uh, I, you see, I can't really answer that because I was, I was trying to say that it's kind of a personal resonance. Mm. Each one of us has a personal frequency of resonance. Mm-hmm. And so some people would prejudge me for my accent. You know, maybe to you and my wife it sounds nice, for others it doesn't. Uh, and I've had people say so on my YouTube channel, by the way. Um, loud and clear. Uh, so we, and also our own frequency changes not only throughout the day, but you know throughout the seasons, and also throughout you know the events that we experience and mm-hmm. through our own journeys. Mm-hmm. So even for the same person, the same thing can resonate positively or negatively at different points in time, mm-hmm. right? And so even now. Uh, for example, I had to rewatch recently my interview with Kevin Kelly that I did six years ago, and I did my uh, on his previous book, and now I, on episode two hundred, I did his latest book. Great. And I went to rewatch it, of course, and I rediscovered many things that he told me at the time that didn't connect well with me at the time, and it took two hundred episodes for me to sort of grow to that level of 
you can call it development or maturity or what what have you, to appreciate them. Mm-hmm. You know, so at that moment, six years ago, we were at different levels of resonance, and this time we connected, or at least I connected this time with the six-year-old message that he sent me. So I think for everyone, it's very personal. So that that makes me think about the nature and the definition and the social understanding of the singularity itself as a concept, a concept that's floated around in some form or another for 40, 45 years now. Mm. Um how has that idea changed? I mean, more. I, I'd love to hear you speak more broadly about how you think people's understanding of the idea has evolved over time. But even just in the last seven years, a lot of the guests on your show have spoken about how the rate at which people have uh, have taken up the term and have started to use it to refer to things. Some some quite clearly and legitimately. Other times, it gets used in mm-hmm. you know the conversation about robot overlords and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit less feasible, depending on who you ask. How has the definition of the singularity and the social um, embrace of the idea of the singularity changed over the last seven years that you've been doing these interviews? So let me share with you an interesting observation, which is kind of to say that I'm always kind of going against the the the, the stream or the the flow, if you will, in mm-hmm. a way. So when I started. I started as a kind of a, you can say, somewhat very committed singularitarian or convinced singularitarian uh, in a, at a time where it was kind of considered almost crazy, insane, geeky, cultish, impossible, weird, Rapture strange. of the nerds. Exactly, yeah. So at that time, the, the it was not known in the mainstream. Uh, due to my work, it I, I had gotten to be um, very much into it. And I was totally kind of going with that kind of flow against the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And in the last seven years, the reverse has happened in a way. The sing- as the singularity has popped a lot more into the mainstream and become... Uh, uh, not quite mainstream yet, but you have people like Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, talking about, you know... Johnny Depp. Yeah, Johnny Depp. <laughs> well, who could miss Johnny Depp? <laughs> of course. Um, and by the way, Hugo de Garris was an advisor for that movie. So mm. if people watch my interview with Hugo de Garris, he even mentions about that movie but by, by saying that he cannot say the name of the movie that he was an advisor uh-huh. for. And you can see, because Hugo is that kind of a very dark kind of guy in some ways, so you could see his fingerprints on the movie. Anyway, but um, as it has popped a lot more into the mainstream, I have kind of went into the other direction. And that's, in, the, in a way, indirectly a little bit attributed to you, because you were the one who pointed me to a man who started um, making the first crack in the singularity um, idea, if you will, called uh, Carl Schroeder, mm-hmm. uh, whose interview had a huge impact on me in the sense it's a that great interview. Uh, he said that, you know, you have to watch out when you talk about the future, that if you have a hammer, everything looks, starts looking like a nail. Mm-hmm. And that the singularity is very useful and helpful as an idea, as, an, as a lens that you lift and you look through to see the future and to see what you can gain from that kind of tool. Mm-hmm. But it makes no sense and it's very limiting to actually um, only use a single lens. It's best to use as many, a diversity of tools, a diversity of lenses, a diversity of outlooks 
to look into the future and then triangulate where events might take us. Mm -hmm. So, and that's also another thing that Kevin Kelly told me that he's not a singularitarian, but he's a lot more pluralist mm -hmm. rather than singular point of view of the future. So I started kind of a lot more singular and I'm not absolutely non-singular now. I'm still kind of a singularitarian, but in a very broad, it's kind of complicated. It's in a very broad, much broader sense. And I'm a lot more pluralistically open for all kinds of diversity of, of options and futures. Interesting. Certainly a lot of the methods and frameworks from the world of scenario planning and strategic foresight yeah. are about pluralizing your understanding or your definition Absolutely. of the future, broadening that cone of understanding and possibility. Yeah. Moving beyond just what is preferable to what is plausible, what is possible. Um, so that's that's an interesting way to think about it and the creation of of alternative scenarios. And I think that's that's part of what you do a great job at is creating effectively two hundred alternate versions of the future that sometimes hook into each other like a patchwork quilt across these episodes. But you're just as likely to hear people directly contradicting who was on the week before, the month before, the year before. And that's valuable stuff. It's very well set, by the way, like a quilt work. I like it. Um, speaking of scenarios, let's talk five years from now or ten years from now or as far out as you'd like to go. The 50-year scenario is a, always a controversial topic, but... What do you think is the best case scenario, the preferable scenario for where Singularity Weblog and Singularity One-on-One -on -one and your career go? Well, so the bottom line is I want to have an impact in, a, in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. I believe that impact can be done through you, through my audience, in the way that you can do an impact or have an impact. Mm -hmm. By giving birth to your own ideas and following through with action and making a difference. Uh, but to be more specific about my kind of selfish goals or vision, then I would say, basically, I have a... I was lucky that when I started, I kind of started the blog maybe a few months before Singularity University started. And at that time, there was not much demand for Singularity domains. <laughs> so I actually ended up buying about 30 or 40 of the good domains back in the day, uh -huh. for 10 bucks each or something. And so... Um, I own, for example, one of the, one of the cool domains I own is called singularity.info. So that's kind of like ideally going to be my umbrella. Mm -hmm. Then a subset of that. So basically, my company is called Singularity Media. Mm -hmm. So the the that's the umbrella, the the sort of the corporate. I don't like the word corporate, but it's kind of like my business entrepreneur, infopreneur kind of legal structure which owns my stuff is called Singularity Media Incorporated. Then my Singularity Info is the domain which is going to be the umbrella domain. Then I have Singularity.tv which is going to deal with my sort of TV, um, video casts, vlogging, etc. Mm -hmm. Then I have Singularity.fm which is going to deal with my audio podcasts, radio broadcasts, etc. Then I have the Singularity blog, which is going to be sort of the blogging platform. And the idea is, uh, you know, it has to be much bigger, hopefully, than me, mm -hmm. uh, so that I can be an editor and a host, but 
we can be a good sized team of people and each of those can grow on its own and each of those can uh, make a difference and I don't have to be a one-man show anymore and I don't have to be in charge of it even but uh, sort of sort of we will have a team with uh, people with mutual interest mm-hmm. and we're going to push this as, as far for, forward as possible and also the, the upside of that is by the way that I'm not gonna have to do the stuff that I really hate oh good let's do that let's do that checklist right so I, I totally hate editing, man. I, yeah. It drives me crazy. I, I, I suck at it. I mean, I mean, part of it, part of the reason why I suck is because I hate it. Mm-hmm. But the other part is, or maybe I hate it because it's so hard to for me to do and takes me so much time. And I'd rather have people who enjoy that and who are much more proficient than me do that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think, I, and I'm not like really good yet, perhaps at asking questions, but I think this is the place where I'm showing the most promise. This is where I like to focus on. So I'm good at doing the research. I enjoy that. I'm good at uh, the actual interviewing process. I enjoy that. I don't want to deal with editing. I don't want to deal with the, with the production end of things. And the, the, when my website crashes and I have to kind of troubleshoot it, I go crazy. Oh yeah. Honestly. And, and I'm lucky I have people who help me with that, but um, so I have a guy in England, uh, his name is David Alexander, and he's freaking awesome. He's helped me. Uh, he's implemented basically the design that I have asked him to implement from me, uh, from me. So he's made it a reality with a number of kind of enhancements and improvements from himself and his own artistic background. Um, I love the guy because he uh, makes what I ask him to make for me, but also because he saves me all the aggravation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I want to be as further away from all those things as possible. <laughs> like the, the, the blog focus on your calling. Yeah. The technical stuff is just, you know, it's a distraction and it's a waste of time on me because I take five times longer than any other reasonable person in the world. And, but on the other hand, don't let that scare you away because it can be done. If I've been able to do it and get through it and be where I am, you can do it too. So yeah, it's annoying, and yes, everyone would find some part of you know an activity to be annoying or time wasting or anything like that. But there are rewards, and sometimes we just have to suck it up and do what needs to be done. Yeah, it's totally within reach. Yeah, I, I hear you. We have that in common. I for the first few years of our business, I was founder, president, and CEO, but also IT guy, webmaster, <laughs> photo and video editor, documentation package yeah. producer. And it's, uh, it's complicated, but it did all get done. And it's nice to have a sense of the parts of your business and your, your operation that maybe in the longer run you want to get away from a little bit. Yes. Uh, do you like presenting? Do you like telling, telling your story to a crowd, live or, live or webcast? Not necessarily my story. Mm-hmm. I like, so here's the thing. I don't mind that. I'm, I'm a very kind of extrovert kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that. What I do prefer, though, and what I do like is learning rather than... Because when I tell my own story, I learn nothing, Mm -hmm. okay? Let's be honest. I hope other people learn something, and that's the reason why I say it. But selfishly, I'd rather not repeat my own story. Mm -hmm. I'd rather ask somebody, interesting, better person than me, tell their own story. And hopefully, with the help of my good questions... The audience can learn and I can learn too, mm-hmm. right? So for me, that's the best. That's really where I think I can make the best, the biggest difference. 
Do you have a good story of a time when that's really happened? When you've made a presentation, you feel like it's gone really well. You've you've shared a story or some insights or a provocative position that has really resonated with people and riled people up. Well, so uh, I would say maybe there's been a couple of dozen of cases out of two hundred people when after the interview, the mm-hmm. interviewees have come to me and have said, "You know what? I've done." thousands of interviews and this one has been the best I've ever done and you know this is kind of the goal that I approach each and every one of them Mm -hmm. I want them to finish and say this was the best I've ever done now I've only managed to accomplish that maybe 10% of the time it's pretty good it's pretty good yeah it's it's good Um, I could do better though I could do better Mm -hmm. that's still 90% not quite there so I could do a lot better, I hope, uh, which is where experience and skill and knowledge comes, which is why I spend ridiculous amounts of time preparing for, for each and every interview. Um, to be more specific, though, for a presentation that's kind of riled and it's been controversial, obviously, I have to say my presentation in Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was called uh, The Emperor Has No Clothes um, and, and I was kind of trying to deconstruct Singularity University and uh, people are free to go and watch it and, and, and sort of judge for themselves. Um, I know that if I were to say myself, I would say that one has probably elements of my best and by far my worst presentations. <laughs> Um, because I still stand 100% by everything that I said. Did I say it in the best way possible? Probably not. It's hard to tell with controversial ideas or where you're being the gadfly or poking at someone. Is it worth getting the storytelling and the charisma right or is it more important to just try and make your point and see what happens? Right. So. Yeah, and, and I spent, for example, exactly to your point, I spent maybe, not maybe, surely way too long on my own story. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wanted to do that, by the way, is because I wanted to show people the kind of background I have and the kind of mistakes I tend to make so that then they are in a better position to judge whether that was one of those mistakes that I usually tend to make or whether it's there's more to it. Mm-hmm. So th- that's the reason why I actually went into the personal story and then I ended up dragging it and uh, being too long on that end. But the good news is that with the magic of the internet, you can skip all that part <laughs> and go to the meat of the matter and just go straight into the gist of my argument and not waste any time on my personal story. Um, and, and even to the gist of the argument, you know, there's a lot of things that I could have said better. So again, uh, it has elements of my best in the sense of it kind of says, I think, what I am f- all about mm-hmm. and what I stand for. Did I present it and argue it in the best way possible? I don't think so, probably. I, there's a lot of things I could have done better. But, you know, it, it's a learning experience. Uh, as I said, I, I stand by it, by it 100%. Uh, even though I'm always happy to change my opinion if someone shows me the evidence that I've been wrong, which so far I've seen nothing mm-hmm. uh, of that sort of kind. Um, but you'll live to fight another day. Yeah, hopefully not to fight, but to, to have fun and to, to, sure. to maybe debate at worst. Live but, to fun another day. Yes.
So let's come back to the present and talk okay. about this current fundraiser, this campaign. Oh yeah. What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish both qualitatively and quantitatively with this with this campaign? So qualitatively, I'm trying to kind of secure the future of the podcast for the next year or so. Mm -hmm. uh, where I would have the capability to travel and do high-quality uh, in-person interviews with very amazing people uh, across the globe, not only North America, but anywhere. I would not be limited by resources to travel and do anything in person. That's kind of... And secure the future for the next year, maybe two years even, mm -hmm. depending uh, on production expenses and stuff like that. But... Um, that's the kind of qualitative uh, aim and, and also get to the next level. Um, now, quantitatively... Mm -hmm. How much do you need to raise? Right. So, basically, I need a minimum of $100,000 to accomplish that goal that I just mentioned in terms of money. Um, that will be the minimum. That that's going to ensure that uh, I am capable to capable to produce and sustain the blog for the next year or two, until we start cranking out the other things that I have in mind. Um, also, I would have two stretch goals, mm -hmm. which would take it to a whole other level. So the minimum amount that I need to sustain this going is a hundred thousand. If we reach 200,000, that's my first stretch goal, um, that would mean that I will be able to release all my 200 episodes, maybe 250 hours of video, maybe more, um, under a Creative Commons license. Amazing. Which means that not only will they be available as they are now everywhere for free to any, for anyone to watch and learn from, but mm -hmm. also to take, use, abuse, mix and remix, do whatever the heck they want with them. I can imagine some amazing auto-tune YouTube clips coming together out of this wealth of material you've got. I think it's I, I, I think it's a possibility and I honestly really hope hope that will be the case mm -hmm. because that would be the, the best uh, thing to do. And as I said, the, the production cost of, of these things for the last few years has added to well over actually $200,000. Mm-hmm. Um, much more than 200,000 probably. Um, and then the, 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 the next stretch goal will be $300,000, um, in which case I would not only release all my past work, but also all my future work related. Anything that I ever produce under the Singularity one-on-one -on -one or the Singularity podcast mm -hmm. uh, will be Creative Commons license. So the moment it comes up and is published, anyone can take it, download it, and use it, and abuse it, or do whatever they want to do with it. So amazing. Yeah, I'd love to integrate it into some of the work we do at my company, the Mission Business. There's an enormous amount of of quality storytelling about the future in those 200 episodes. That is a, yeah. a gold mine. Yeah. Um, in other words, it would basically help me to make this really a public archive of, of the future, uh, as some people have called it, so that anyone can not only access it, but take out elements and use any way they want. 
Do you have any interest in exploring new forms, new media, new formats in the next couple of years? So maybe with these stretch goals, the video game, the iOS app, the uh, the documentary, the long form documentary, the novelization. So, yes and no. So let me let me talk one by one. So first mm -hmm. of all, in principle, I don't think that you can do too many things too good. Mm -hmm. I believe that focus is what makes the difference. Uh, you want to be sharp as a samurai sword. You, you mm -hmm. don't want to be, you know, wide as a as a frying pan, and then you can't cut through any obstacle. If you're sharp and focused, you can cut through obstacles. And 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 so, therefore, uh, I try not to um, diffuse my attention and my focus too much. Now, specifically though, on the documentary um, point of things. I am even right now very happy to do the, a documentary under the following uh, conditions. I am happy to become a 50-50 equal partner with anyone right now who is capable to produce a documentary where I provide all of my archive, all of my footage, all of my videos, and they're able to do the creative editing and make it into a story. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be equal partners. Right. So, and of course, I have to believe that they're capable, not only have the desire, but have the experience and the knowledge and are capable of producing that and pulling that off. But in that sense, I'm happy to do a documentary anytime. Um, other new media, you see, maybe I'm too old, but the <laughs> video game stuff, I don't quite get that quite yet. Maybe things will change. Maybe I'll be enlightened. But at this moment, I don't have any plans for that. Mm -hmm. It's been interesting to look at some of the success that organizations like uh, TED have had in the last several years, yeah. building their app, pushing out the content, getting it on all the platforms so people can have those magical seven points of connection with their yeah. 15 minutes of genius insight. Yeah. Uh, but you've, you've got a different product. You're... Your interviews and the conversations that happen in them are in some ways the anti-TED talk. They're getting away from the gloss, getting away from the well-rehearsed lines and, and marketing and PR materials that people have. Sometimes you're talking for two or three hours. Um, that's got to be a challenging format to work in. In many ways, you're already making feature films. You're ma you've made 200 feature films on the feature documentaries on the topic of the singularity so far. What is it like to work in that, in that format and at that length? You know, that's a, that's a very good question, and, and it has so many dimensions to it. So, first of all, let me say it, at the larger sort of uh, meta level, mm -hmm. I don't try to go for perfection. TED Talks are all about perfection, mm -hmm. right? You have 15 or 17 minutes, whatever. You go in and you learn your points, you make your points. in Story the most about your childhood, here's yeah. your thesis. Everything is learned by heart yeah. and practiced and rehearsed over and over again. With me, it's the exact opposite approach. Mm -hmm. Because I don't go for perfection, I go for authenticity. Mm -hmm. Right? So, um, actually, it's more authentic to be imperfect. It's more authentic to make mistakes. It's more authentic to be non-rehearsed, because that's more genuine, mm -hmm. than to be perfect. And actually, people tend to keep their the audience tends to kind of be a little bit more skeptical when people are too perfect and too polished, and if they sound like a politician, maybe or something yeah. like that, right? So my whole goal is to derail. That's my kind of subversive agenda, if you want to call it, 
is to derail people who, in many cases, my interviewees have done thousands of interviews and they have their own spiel. And it's like, you know, they've done it 10,000 times, they expect and hope it will be the exact same as the 10,000 times they've done before. And they're like a, 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 a train on, on, on rails. Mm -hmm. And my whole preparation <clears throat> is designed, hopefully if it accomplishes that goal, to somewhat blow the tracks off and let them go into new directions that they're not used to go and to, into a new territory that they don't venture often into because it's risky mm -hmm. and because it's dangerous. And that's the most rewarding part of an every interview. And those are the ones that stand out and that are really amazing and the people remember are the ones that are not like the 10,000 they've done before, but the ones that are totally new and different and risky and interesting because they ended up in a new situation, mm -hmm. in a new context, in a new vision. Uh, and that's what makes it memorable and, and rewarding. And you, the reason why I stick with the long point interviews is that you can't do that in 20 or 30 minutes. You know, it takes a long time to establish some kind of rapport. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, those people I interview are super famous quite often, especially in our circles, the tech geek kind of computer science, technology towards humanism circles. Yeah. They're all very busy people. Mm -hmm. I've met them at best once or twice or three times before that at best. Most of those people I've never met in my life in person. And we go and do an interview and we expect to be honest with each other. So how's that work? The only way that could possibly work is if number one is I am 100% honest and authentic when I sit with these people. I establish some kind of rapport with them mm -hmm. and I make myself vulnerable, honest being able and willing to make mistakes mm -hmm. and to fail in front of them and in front of my audience. And then maybe in 45 minutes or in 60 minutes, they would feel comfortable enough and they would let their guard down and they would come to my level and they would reciprocate by being equally authentic, honest, genuine and vulnerable. And then it's the real magic. Then maybe after the 60th minute, in the minute like 81, something amazing happens. Mm -hmm. And then you learn stuff that you've never expected you learn from those people and you've never heard them say it before, ever. But I can't do that in 15 or 20 or 30 minutes because people are always, why don't you do? And then they're like, why don't you edit or something like that? You know, I, I one thing I've learned is I, I probably do lose considerable amount of traffic because I don't edit. Sure. But the people who care, they watch to the end. And they not only watch it to the end, they watch it over and over and over again. Right? Because it's all about priorities and how much you care. Those who care are those who make the difference in the end. They're those who support my podcast. Mm -hmm. They're those who take something learned and it hopefully makes a difference for their life be it personally or professionally. And that's where the reward for them comes, hopefully, and for me, definitely. I hope there are a lot of people watching this right now who have the hairs on the back of their neck standing up. They've realized, he's making this for me. He <laughs> makes it because I care. Uh, and there's, there is, of course, something very powerful to an experience that is live and that is organic and that is authentic and that is risky like that. Uh, a lot of the 
fascinating companies that we work with and meet at the mission business. It's the, the Microsofts and the Autodesks and NASA. They have to condense so much of their vision of the future into like a five minute video or a 10 minute TED talk or whatever it happens to be. And you lose so much more of the, of the nuance when you do that. And it's one of the reasons why the work we do is about taking an approach that is much more like theater than it is like a short film or an episode of television or a feature film. When you can spend a few hours with people in a physical space and you can give them the sense that everything is just on the razor's edge and if they push too far it might all fall apart and they have responsibility and they have status and they have to bring their integrity to it, uh, you get a better result and you, you learn more interesting things both about yourself as a participant uh, and we certainly, as the designers and the interviewers of these experiences and conversations, we learn more about ourselves that way, I think. Absolutely. And because it's a process not only of discovery, but of self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I believe you can do the journey to the degree only that you're ready to do the journey for. So it's kind of like you have to have not only the stamina, but you have to be the person who can do the journey as mm -hmm. you're doing the journey. And if you're only in the beginning of the journey, perhaps you're not quite ready for going any deeper into the journey, but... You're not the hero yet. And you're not the hero and you don't have the, the, the physical or mental or spiritual stamina, mm -hmm. or, or you don't have the skills or the tools or the commitment or the emotional attachment to the journey. Uh, all those things, they come in time, and you do become better in, in every way possible, I believe, in the end. Hopefully. That's, that's, that's my goal, anyway. And, and I, I think that while I'm very far from perfect, you know, I, I, I have improved a little bit, perhaps, mm -hmm. in the last 200 episodes, and I want to keep, keep on with that journey. It, it makes me happy. It, it makes me rewarding, uh, rewarded uh, very selfishly, but, but also I think it gives to so many other people at the same time, which is why it's so awesome, because it's really a win-win scenario. Not only for me, not only for the interviewee that I interview, mm -hmm. because it promotes their work and their life's passions, but also for the audience who is along with us on this journey and hopefully can take nuggets and apply them in their own journeys or use them on their own, uh, in their own travels. Do you know much about the, the viewership habits of your audience or people sitting down on the on the proverbial sofa with an episode of singularity one-on-one -on -one? are they listening to it at work in the podcast form is it a something that they do when they're moving around do you hear from your audience about that kind of thing yeah so i've had all kinds of crazy situations so first of all in terms of habits we cover the full gamut mm -hmm. uh, so uh, i'm kind of um the almost evenly split between iTunes and YouTube, mm -hmm. which means that about half of my audience um, tends to watch uh, the, the videos on YouTube and about half tends to listen. So, for example, from the listening end of things, I've had people like there was this um, very cool IT guy from Montreal uh, who sent me an email saying, you know, I have five kids or something mm -hmm. like that. And I have no time, and I'm, I'm a busy IT professional. I have no time for your podcast. So the only time for me, or the only way for me to listen to it, was to take on jogging. Sure. Because that's the only time I can carve out for me and listen for your at your uh, for your show. He's like, I tried listening at it in the subway, it didn't work. So now I've taken on jogging. So thanks very much, not only for 
feeding my kind of uh, soul and my mind, but also for inspiring me to get get on with with improving my body even right, which is like fantastic. He's like win 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 scenario. He's better in every way possible after that hour of interview. I think I love it. There's the imaginary Socrates riding beside him on a bicycle as he jogs, telling the story and and relaying the interview. Yeah, and there's some some very kind of magical kind of connection that that people get. Like I, I meet people. And they tell me, you're in my head, man. Uh-huh. You're in my head. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you, or some guy I met once, he, he told me, you're a voice in my head. I was like, whoa, that, I'm not sure if that's what a good I thing. Say? I don't, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, like a voice in my head. But of course, he meant it in the best way possible. And I'm, I'm very, very happy if that works uh, this way for, for people. Uh, now, in terms of the demographics of my audience, I do very well in some, in most ways. In one way, I do terribly well, uh, terribly bad. And uh, my wife mercilessly criticizes me for that. And that's the fact that I have 88% male and 12% female mm-hmm. uh, in my audience. How so, do you get that information? Well, I have all kinds of demographics from places like Quantcast and uh-huh. Google Analytics and so on. Um, but um, so. There's a lot more work I need to do to bring more female um, interviewees in my on my show. And my wife always says, "You need more women. You need to talk to more women. You need to." And she's totally right. I totally do my best, but I unfortunately I I cannot interview the people who will be as the the, the women represented in technology uh, grow in terms of percentage. I only interview the people who already are in technology, kind of. Uh-huh. So and people who've published their books and right or whatever and and so I that that's probably a very poor excuse. I, I'm doing my best to bring as many women as possible. Mm-hmm. So let me let me just leave it at that. Um, other than that, my audience is totally fantastic. So for example, and that's not necessarily a, 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 a meaningful in in some ways rather than others. But seventy percent of my audience has a university degree. 40% of them have a PhD. Wow. When I saw that, I was like flabbergasted. How can someone's audience has 40% PhD? That's so grossly overrepresented mm-hmm. as, a, as opposed to the average uh, population representation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so my audience is generally, uh, and even if they don't have like formal education, those are people very geeks like me, like okay. us, who are very interested in technology, who are at the cutting edge, and are the most uh, technologically sophisticated and best educated people, whether formally or informally. So I, I'm very blessed to have, I think, the best audience in the world, uh, except for I do need to bring a lot more women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about kids? I wonder about that sometimes when I watch the interviews too, how this kind of content, this storytelling would fit in an educational context as part of a, a courseware package on the future of STEM, STEM into STEAM. Yeah, well, kids, first of all, I don't know what the definition of kids is. Mm-hmm. I know we call, we now have young adults, uh, and I don't know what's the, what's the sort of the, the, the cutoff point, but I have sort of early teenagers. Mm-hmm. So I don't have anyone, let's say, that's written to me that's younger than 13. I've had a number of uh, kids, which, you know, a four-year-old guy like me would call kids 
who are in the range of let's say 14 to 17 mm-hmm. um, and and those uh, usually have questions about what they should do with their life or what where they should direct their interest in or some of them tell me you know because of your podcast I've decided to devote my life in studying applied mathematics with a focus on artificial intelligence or something like that or go into science uh, while not forgetting ethics at the same time, which is which is awesome because usually uh, ethics is a bit of an afterthought when it comes to science. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm very happy if if people kind of keep that uh, um, tool as part of their suitcase uh, on their journey, uh, you know, uh, of life. Yeah, the danger of keeping your ethics as a textbook, an old dusty textbook that you learn once and then just roll with it right. for the next fifty years. Right. Uh, in this age of dramatic change is complicated. Right, right. So we have a couple of questions that came in from uh, Paul McIsaac, who's okay. a theater creator and yes. a, a member of your audience. Yes. Uh, and one of them goes back to your, your childhood and where you came from. Yeah. So Paul asks, uh, raised in a distorted socialist system and educated in political science, how do you relate the future of capitalism and socialism to the singularity? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I think that we can get in this hybrid techno mixture that we can drop the worst parts of each of those and Mm -hmm. get the best parts of each of those, provided we're smart about doing this, right? So we can, we, and, and you can call that, you know, uh, capitalism with a human face or, or techno-socialism, I don't really care about the label, mm-hmm. as long as, as we kind of take the, the best that, that each of those have to offer. You know, capitalism has a lot of good stuff to offer, and the market is a very powerful, very useful tool. Competition uh, is a very powerful, very useful uh, tool. The free enterprise is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, we're all free entrepreneurs in life. Um, but there's a lot of situations where we have market failure, where we have negative externalities, where we need some kind of a legal or ethical structure that should regulate the workings of, of, of that uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, I don't know if you can, you want to call it resource-based economy or you want to call it hybrid uh, capitalism or Anything you want to call it, the label is irrelevant. I'm just hoping that in a, in an abundant future, we have the capacity to take the best of each and mix it in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. So you tend to finish your interviews with two questions. Mm-hmm. thought it seemed apropos to end this interview with them as well. Uh, the first one's probably pretty easy. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Right. So if you're listening to that interview, you already know that uh, you can find me at Singularity One on One on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. Also, you can find me on singularityweblog.com and uh, at Singularity Blog on Twitter. And the second question, we'll leave this one a little bit more open-ended. At this moment, and perhaps what is the start of the slow takeoff of the singularity, and certainly the, the rapid takeoff of your fundraising campaign, what sort of parting message would you like to leave to your audience? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. 
Um, what I can say is this, my message is very simple. It's um, help me interview the future to find out your mission to make a difference for a better future, better you. Thank you. Thanks Thank for inviting you. me to uh, chat today. It was a pleasure. My pleasure, Trevor.